Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today, we have episode 282 for July 25th, 2022. DEFCON 30 is right around the corner. I know most of you guys aren't going, uh, but it's a really big deal for me, and I cannot wait. I'm getting super pumped. Uh, I've got a few things to say about that if you're going, uh, but I'll save that for the end of the show. Uh, so we have a new show for you today, lots of topics to cover. I've got a report from U.S. News about some Chinese-made GPS trackers that are highly vulnerable and can cause some serious mischief. Got a report from Ars Technica about a zero-day in Chrome uh, that also might affect Edge and Safari users too. There's been a Twitter data breach that exposed the contact details of over 5 million accounts currently on sale on the dark web. Windows 11 is getting a welcome new security feature. The Conti ransomware gang is back uh, and wreaking havoc in Costa Rica. We'll talk uh, a little bit about that. Facebook has responded to Firefox's URL stripping to prevent tracking. Uh, not surprising. The Tor browser has an interesting new automated censorship circumvention feature. Google has revealed plans to let more political spam into your inbox. Amazon is admitting to giving ring camera footage to the police without a warrant or consent. Some researchers have figured out that it's actually pretty darn easy to hack into most Honda cars right now. And Wired has an article that's titled, A New Attack Can Unmask Anonymous Users on Any Major Browser, which of course is a clickbaity title. I really wish they wouldn't have used that, and I want to deconstruct what that is all about and then we'll get into my tip of the week. So lots to cover. Let's get to the news. All right, first up, this is from U.S. News and World Report. It's about some Chinese-made GPS trackers that have some really nasty vulnerabilities, and the consequences could be pretty bad. So uh, let me read from this article. A popular Chinese-made automotive GPS tracker used by individuals, government agencies, and companies in 169 countries has severe software vulnerabilities, posing a potential danger to life and limb, national security, and supply chains, cybersecurity researchers have found. A report by the Boston cybersecurity firm BitSight says the flaws could let attackers remotely hijack device-equipped vehicles, cutting off fuel to them and otherwise seizing control while they travel. The researchers say users should immediately disable the MV720, that's MV720, GPS tracker until a fix becomes available. I'll stop just briefly to say this is probably not on your car. This is more for a fleet vehicle kind of thing. Uh, but nevertheless, um, let, let me finish the article. We'll talk some more. The report was released Tuesday, and I think this would have been a week ago or maybe two weeks ago, to coincide with an advisory from the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infra Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, listing six vulnerabilities. BitSight said it tried unsuccessfully for months, beginning in September with CISA joining in in late April to engage the manufacturer Shenzhen-based MyCodus, uh, M-I-C-O-D-U-S, in discussion addressing the vulnerabilities, the Associated Press telephoned and emailed the company but got no response. A person who answered a phone number listed on its website was unable to respond in English. GPS trackers are used globally to monitor vehicle fleets, from trucks to school buses to military vehicles, and protect them against theft. In addition to collecting data on vehicle location, they can also monitor other vehicle metrics, such as driver behavior and fuel usage. Via remote access, many are wired to cut off a vehicle's fuel or alarm, lock or unlock its doors, and more. 
using the MV720, which BitSite says costs less than $25 per unit, a malicious user could remotely cut off the fuel line of a vehicle in motion, know a vehicle's real-time location for espionage purposes, or intercept and taint location or other data to sabotage operations, said the principal BitSite researcher on the project, Pedro uh, Umbelino. He said multiple malicious scenarios are possible. First responders' vehicles could be crippled, or a hacker could shut off an engine and demand a cryptocurrency ransom of victims to avoid calling a mechanic. The main vulnerabilities? The device comes with a default password that more than 90% of users don't change. And there is a second obscure but hard-coded password that works for all devices, BitSight found. It also found security flaws in the software of the web server used to remotely manage the GPS devices. The manufacturer, Mycetus, claims an installed base of 1.5 million devices across 420,000 customers, said BitSight. Its research found they included a Fortune 50 energy company and an aerospace company, a national military in South America and in Eastern Europe, a nuclear power plant operator, and a national law enforcement agency in Western Europe. It did not name any of them. Countries with the most users include, by continent, Brazil, Mexico, Spain, and Russia. Richard Clark, the former U.S. cybersecurity czar, called the insecure GPS device yet another example of a smart Chinese-made product, quote, that is phoning home and could be used maliciously by the Chinese government, unquote. While Clark said he doubted the tracker was designed for that purpose, the danger is real because Chinese companies are obliged by law to follow the government's orders, which is why Washington has been seeking to minimize Chinese components in U.S. telecom networks and why some in Congress are pushing for a ban on U.S. government purchases of Chinese drones. All right, so again, this this device is more than likely used in fleet devices, uh, so it's probably not something that you personally are using, though I suppose it could be. So the bigger issue here really is that these super cheap devices, I mean, 25 bucks for a device that could do all the things this thing can do is way too cheap. I mean, there's obviously not a lot of time spent on security in this. And it's obvious that they that they didn't because of these default password problems. Nothing should have a default password anymore. They need to like randomly generate passwords for all these things and install them at the factory. That is certainly doable. And they, and they need to stop having a single default password for all these devices. But it also just goes to show that we really need... I hate to keep falling back on regulation, but we need some sort of laws in place, uh, you know, buying policies and minimum security policies on these kind of products. Anything that could be used in such a way that certainly could harm somebody, but these devices can almost always find some way to be used uh, in some sort of a blackmail or ransom scheme too. Security just cannot be an afterthought anymore. It's got to be baked in. We need security by design, just like we need privacy by design. Somehow, as a society, as a culture, as a government, I'm not sure at what level this needs to happen, maybe all of the above, we have just got to raise the bar here. Security is a real problem. And there are so many simple things we can and should be doing and just aren't. All right, moving on. This is from Ars Technica. It's about a zero day in Chrome that looks like it affects other browsers too. A secretive seller of cyber attack software recently exploited a previously unknown Chrome vulnerability and two other zero days in campaigns that covertly infected journalists and other targets with sophisticated spyware, security researchers said. CVE 2022-2294, which is again, the year is 2022, and this is number 2,294 for the year. Again, CVE 2022-2294, 
as the vulnerability is tracked, stems from memory corruption flaws in web real-time communications, an open-source project that provides JavaScript programming interfaces to enable real-time voice, text, and video communications capability capabilities between web browsers and devices. Google patched the flaw on July 4th after researchers from security firm Avast privately notified the company it was being exploited in watering hole attacks, I'll explain that in a minute, which in fact targeted websites with malware in hopes of then infecting frequent users. Microsoft and Apple have since patched the same web RTC flaw in their Edge and Safari browsers, respectively. Avast said on Thursday that it uncovered multiple attack campaigns, each delivering the exploit in its own way to Chrome users in Lebanon, Turkey, Yemen, and Palestine. The watering hole sites were highly selective in choosing which visitors to infect. And this is a quote from Yan, I can't even take a guess at this last name, uh, from Advast, but this person named, named Jan uh, says, quote, in Lebanon, the attackers seem to have compromised a website used by employees of a news agency. And then there's a, a little bit of this that I kind of took out because it was kind of long, but it's, it talks about this malware group called Kandiru, C-A-N-D-I-R-U. And this researcher went on to say, Kandiru had been lying low following exposés published last July by Microsoft and Citizen Lab. The researcher said the company reemerged from the shadows in March with an updated toolset. The watering hole site, which Avast didn't identify, took pains not only in selecting only certain visitors to infect, but also in preventing its precious zero-day vulnerabilities from being discovered by researchers or potential rival hackers. Despite the efforts to keep uh, this vulnerability a secret, Avast managed to recover the attack code, which exploited a heap overflow in WebRTC to execute malicious shellcode inside a renderer process. Their recovery allowed Avast to identify the vulnerability and report it to developers so it could be fixed. The security firm was unable to obtain a separate zero-day exploit that was required so the first exploit could escape Chrome's security sandbox. That means this second zero-day will live to fight another day. One, and then there's another one that called, that this eventually uh, installed this thing called Devil's Tongue. And I took out part of the article that talked about that too, but it mentions it here. So once Devil's Tongue got installed, it attempted to elevate its system privileges by installing a Windows driver containing yet another unpatched vulnerability, bringing the number of zero-day exploits in this campaign to at least three. Avast has reported the flaw to the driver maker, but there's no indication that a patch has been released. As of publication time, only Avast and one other antivirus engine detected the driver exploit. Since both Google and Microsoft patched the vulnerability in early July, chances are good that most Chrome and Edge users are already protected. Apple, however, fixed the vulnerability on Wednesday, meaning Safari users should make sure their browsers are up to date. So while you in particular are not likely to be the target of this Candiro group, because obviously they were going after some very specific people, the fact that this vulnerability exists and is out there means that other bad guys are now looking at this too and could then capitalize on these uh, on these zero days to exploit you. So you definitely need to make sure that your browsers are up to date, as you should always make sure that all your software is up to date. So I said I would come back to this watering hole thing. That's a, a term of art. That is something that we talk about in the security uh, area. And it's kind of like, a, you know, the watering hole of the desert, you know, all the animals come to eventually because it's the only place to get water. So the way this works in the cybersecurity realm is these is the bad guys set up a particular website or take over a popular website in some way, subvert it somehow, because it is known to be frequented by the people they are trying to attack. So whereas it's not a direct attack on any of these individual people, if they know that the kind of people or the specific people that they are trying to infect are frequent visitors of a particular website or a particular type of website, then they might try to take over that website 
so that when they come, if they can figure out who they are, and it sounded like they, they did try to use some means to identify who was there and only try to infect the people that they were targeting. And maybe they did this by IP address, for example, but they were trying to lay low because they were using three different zero day attacks that that's expanding a lot of really precious info to target these people. So they must've really wanted to get these people. And otherwise they try to be unnoticed because they don't want researchers or other bad guys to, to figure out these exploits and use it for themselves. Because if the bad guys start using them, then that will make them more likely to be found by researchers and then shut down. And of course, if the researchers find them like these guys did, thank goodness, they will and did get, get cut off and got fixed. That is the kind of the double-edged sword of having these really super valuable zero-day bugs is you've got to be very careful in how you use them because once they're discovered and they're no longer zero-day or the zeroth day happens, meaning that the good guys now know about them, they will get fixed pretty rapidly. And then you will no longer be able to exploit those bugs. All right, next up, just a short article here from 9to5Mac. There's been another Twitter data breach. And the article says, a Twitter data breach has allowed an attacker to get access to the contact details of 5.4 million accounts. Twitter has confirmed the security vulnerability which allowed the data to be extracted. The data, which ties Twitter handles to phone numbers and email addresses, has been offered for sale on a hacking forum for about $30,000. Restore Privacy reports that the breach was made possible by a vulnerability discovered back in January. And this is a quote from Restore Privacy. It says, a verified Twitter vulnerability from January has been exploited by a threat actor to gain account data alleged allegedly from 5.4 million users. While Twitter has since patched the vulnerability, the database allegedly acquired from this exploit is now being sold on a popular hacker hacker forum. Back in January, a report was made on hacker one of a vulnerability that allows an attacker to acquire the phone number and or email address associated with a Twitter account, even if the user has hidden these fields and their privacy settings. A threat actor is now selling the data allegedly acquired from this vulnerability. The post is still live now with the Twitter database allegedly consisting of 5.4 million users being for sale. The seller on the hacking forum goes by the username Devil and claims that the dataset includes, quote, celebrities to companies, randoms, OGs, etc., unquote. And this is back to the 9to5 article. It says, HackerOne covered the vulnerability back in January, which allowed anyone to enter a phone number or email address and then find the associated Twitter ID. It's likely that the attacker obtained existing databases of phone numbers and email addresses obtained in breaches in other services and then used those details to search for the corresponding Twitter IDs. There is as yet no way to check whether your account is included in the Twitter data breach. So that little, that little detail at the end was pretty important. So what it really means is, these people already had phone numbers and email addresses, maybe just one or the other. Uh, but then that allowed them to find the Twitter ID. And then from the Twitter ID, then they could find, I guess, if they had the phone number, they could find the Twitter ID. And then from the Twitter ID with this uh, vulnerability, they could get the email address. So it's not quite as bad as it sounds. And yet this bad guy somehow did have apparently 5.4 million either email addresses or phone numbers to look up through this, this vulnerability to get the Twitter IDs and get the rest of the information. So it's, in some ways, it's not as bad as it sounds, but you know, still 4.5 million users, that's a lot of data. It would be kind of nice to know if you're in that list, but uh, I don't know that they'll be able to tell you that. 
All right, next up, this is from ZDNet, and this is actually some good news. Um, Microsoft is rolling out a new security default for Windows 11 that will go a long way to preventing ransomware attacks that begin with password guessing attacks and compromised credentials. The new account security default on account credentials should help thwart ransomware attacks that are initiated after using compromised credentials or brute force password attacks to access remote desktop protocol or RDP endpoints which are often exposed on the internet. RDP remains the top method for initial access and ransomware deployments with groups specializing in compromising RDP endpoints and selling them to others for access. The new feature is rolling out to Windows 11 in a recent insider test build, but the feature is also being backported to Windows 10 desktop and server, according to Dave Weston, Vice, Vice President of OS Security and Enterprise at Microsoft. And this is a quote from, from Weston. Uh, Weston says, quote, Windows 11 builds now have a default account lockout policy to mitigate RDP and other brute force password vectors. Uh, this technique is very commonly used in human-operated ransomware and other attacks. This control will make brute forcing much harder, which is awesome, unquote. Weston also emphasized the default part because this policy is already an option in Windows 10 but isn't, st but isn't enabled by default. That's big news and is a parallel to Microsoft's default block on internet macros in Office, in Office on Windows devices, which is also a major avenue for malware, for malware attacks on Windows systems through email attachments and links. Beyond ransomware attacks, the Windows 11 security controls should put a dent in the broader issue of brute force password attacks, such as credential stuffing, that are very effective when multi-factor authentication hasn't been enabled for an account. As someone noted recently here, uh, MFA isn't built into RDP and its authentication is easy to brute force. Microsoft hasn't said how it will roll out the new security control to mainstream Windows 11 and Windows 10 users, but it could likely arrive at a future security update. So this is very welcome news along with their new change of the default uh, on whether to allow macros. So RDP, you might not have heard of it, but I don't know if it's still on by default, but it used to be on by default where this is basically allows you to log into your Windows computer remotely and you would bring up a window and it'd be kind of like you're sitting there. You could you'd bring up a window and that window would look just like your desktop and you could control it with your mouse and keyboard as if you were sitting right in front of it. And that has a lot of great uses. I used to use this all the time back when I was at Cisco and other places when I needed to log into a Windows machine uh, from home, for example, uh, or in a lab from my desk kind of thing. But Microsoft had this built in to all these Windows systems, and it was often open by default or on by default so that if you knew how to find the computer on the network and you knew one of the credentials to get in, you could log into that person's machine remotely and take it over. And apparently this login doesn't have a two-factor authentication available, which is really dumb. And it allowed the attacker to basically keep trying credentials until something worked. So now by default, with this new setting, which should have been the default all along, it'll prevent somebody from doing credential stuffing, which is just trying a whole bunch of things that you know, usually this is from other breaches. They'll find some other usernames and passwords in some other breach and just try them everywhere they can to see if they also unlock other doors, basically. Uh, or just brute forcing. Like, you know, if I know someone's uh, Microsoft uh, user ID, and I could just start guessing passwords. And, and this, until now, apparently, by default, would let you try as often as you want without locking you out. Uh, the new defaults will now keep you from doing that. So it's a welcome change, something that should have been done a long time ago. And hopefully we'll be rolling out to Windows 10 and 11 users very soon. All right, next up, an article about the Conti ransomware gang, and they're back. Uh, we thought they may have been gone, but that was too good to be true. Uh, this is from ThreatPost. 
Anytime conflict erupts, people tend to take sides, even when it comes to cybercrime. Since the beginning of the ongoing Russian-Ukrainian war, some bad actors have made their alliances known publicly. The Conti Ransomware as a Service group is one of the most notable, declaring in February that they were backing Russia and would use their arsenal accordingly. Their latest target seems to be the entire country of Costa Rica, which expressed its opposition to the Russian invasion. This begs the question, should other countries be concerned? Why is this happening now, and what does it portend? The Conti ransomware group is behind many prominent attacks, including the one that took down the Irish healthcare service in May of 2021. Conti was also ranked by the FBI as the top ransomware variant targeting critical infrastructure in 2021. The Bureau identified at least 16 attacks by Conti ransomware against U.S. healthcare and first responder networks, including emergency medical services, law enforcement agencies, and 911 dispatch centers last year. Last year, Conti's internal chat logs were leaked. Essentially, their playbook was made public. And more internal records leaked earlier this year showed the group was essentially operating like a company. These documents, ironically leaked in retaliation for Conti's pro-Russian stance, showed that the ransomware ring has a human resources department, offers bonuses, and even names an employee of the month. And since then, what we're seeing and hearing seems to indicate that Conti is trying to overcome these reputational setbacks by setting out to prove that they are legitimate, sophisticated, and still very relevant. We're seeing this in terms of how they recruit, too, going after other threat actors and holding, essentially, recruitment events not that different from what you might expect from a big Silicon Valley company, though obviously a bit more underground. While we don't think they're a nation-state actor, they've certainly made their affiliation well-known and are acting accordingly. That said, the driving factor still always comes back down to money, and they're trying to make sure they stay on top. The attack on Costa Rica has cost the nation millions of dollars. Tax payments were disrupted, and staff at 27 affected government agencies had to revert to pen and paper as their computers remained useless. With this attack, there's evidence that this is essentially an attempt by Conti to quote-unquote rebrand, with news coming not long after the attack that Conti was shutting down in its current form. But the big takeaway here is, what do attacks like the one against an entire nation say about how ransomware is evolving? For one thing, while money is still obviously the driving factor, we're seeing that notoriety and fame-seeking also plays a role. Conti has been direct in its desire to not only extort money, but to overthrow the Costa Rican government. That's a new wrinkle in ransomware that only adds to the attacker's notoriety. We're also seeing attacks that seem primarily focused on destruction. Fortigard Labs researchers recently uncovered a new variant of chaos ransomware in which the attacker has no intention of providing a decryption tool or file instructions. It's all about destroying whatever it can. Bad actors are clearly trying to stoke fear about what could possibly happen. There is still the financial component of ransomware, but at the same time, they are trying to flex their muscles more. It's quite possible that there are competing philosophical differences between the groups, but it's definitely more about spreading fear so that companies will pay whatever attackers ask. As tensions rise, that can change daily. What does this signify in terms of how malware and ransomware are evolving? We're likely going to see much more destructive ransomware attacks with wiper malware, which will completely destroy data. We're going to see more aggressive ransomware attacks using wiper malware. What we're seeing is that bad actors are now less afraid of using more sophisticated attacks, that they're no longer afraid to try those out, and unfortunately, it's going to be much harder to contain and detect them. So ransomware is a scourge that has not been quashed and will not be quashed anytime soon, unfortunately. But honestly, these new security measures, these new default security measures, like the one I just talked about with Windows, some of these lockdown modes from you know companies like Apple, 
we're finally starting to tighten things down. This should have happened a long time ago. But we are fighting back, and it will make a difference. We've got to stop blaming the users. I mean, people are going to be tricked. We've got to build in the security by default. We're getting there, but the bad guys, <laughs> the bad guys are, still have a pretty open playing field right now. All right, next up, a very short one from Bruce Schneier. I, he always gets right to the point, so I like to quote his articles from his blog. This is about uh, Facebook, uh, and it just says, Some sites, including Facebook, add parameters to the web addresses for tracking purposes. We talked about this last week, I think, or the week before. These parameters have no functionality that is relevant to the user, but sites rely on them to track users across pages and properties. And here's a quote from the article, which I probably quoted when I talked about this. Mozilla introduced support for URL stripping stripping in Firefox 102, which it launched in June of 2022. Firefox removes tracking parameters from web addresses automatically, but only in private browsing mode or when the browser's tracking protection feature is set to strict. And I told you how to do this when we talked about it. Firefox users may enable URL stripping in all Firefox modes, but this requires manual configuration. Brave browser strips known tracking parameters from web addresses as well. And then back to Bruce, he says, Facebook has responded by encrypting the entire URL into a single ciphertext blob. And this is a quote from an article that says, since it is no longer possible to identify the tracking part of the web address, it is no longer possible to remove it from the address automatically. In other words, Facebook has the upper hand in regards to URL-based tracking at the time, and there's little that can be done about it short of finding a way to decrypt the information. So, so it's only been two weeks since I told you, I think it was two weeks ago, that Firefox has this new feature, which helpfully strips out these tracking parameters. And if you recall what this looks like, there's a web address that's, you know, Facebook, blah, blah, blah. And then it's usually like question mark and then a bunch of parameters, you know, something equals something, ampersand, something equals something else. Uh, and in those parameters that were right there in the web address, the URL, uh, were these tracking tokens. And so Firefox said, well, look, they're right there. Why don't we just take them out? They don't do anything for you. They're only there for Facebook. So why don't we just remove those? So they remove them. If you went through this, you know, configuration process, which I told you about. And Facebook obviously knew this was coming. I mean, Firefox has, you know, alpha and beta builds that you can download. They, they can see what Firefox is going to be releasing. So they saw this coming and had this ready to go. And as soon as Firefox released this feature, Facebook said, nope we're not going to let you do that anymore. And they basically hid these parameters from Firefox and Brave, presumably. And inside this kind of nasty little encrypted blob, making it unrecognizable to anybody but Facebook, uh, and just said, hey, well, fine, we're just going to work around it. And they did. And so now that feature that Firefox put out and that Brave had had in their browser is now worthless. So this is just a cat and mouse game. It's a whack-a-mole. And until we get some regulations that say this stuff's not allowed, we're just going to have to keep dealing with this. All right, back to some good news. This is about the Tor browser, which we've talked about uh, on the show several times before. It's a tool for doing mostly anonymous browsing. Nothing is 100% these days, but it does a very good job of protecting your identity on the web. It's free. It's based on Firefox. Anybody can download it. Uh, but they've added a new feature, uh, particularly for people who live in uh, countries with very repressive regimes. So let me briefly talk about this new feature. And this is from Info Security Magazine. The Tor project has updated its flagship anonymizing browser to make it easier for users to evade government attempts to block its use in various regions. Tor Browser 11.5 will, quote, transform the user experience of connecting to Tor from heavily censored regions, unquote, according to the U.S.-based nonprofit that manages the open source software. 
It replaces a manual and confusing process which required the users to manage their own Tor network settings in order to work out how to apply a bridge to unblock Tor in their region. As different bridge configurations may be needed to achieve this in different countries, the manual effort put too high a burden on censored users, the Tor project admitted. Its answer is Connection Assistant, which will automatically apply the bridge configuration that should work best in a user's specific location. Countries that have blocked the Tor network include China, Russia, Belarus, and Turkmenistan. Volunteers in these and other affected countries are urged to apply to be an alpha tester, so feedback can be shared with the community. There's also a new HTTPS-only default mode for users, which will protect customers by encrypting traffic between their machine and the web servers it contacts. And a quote from, I think, a Tor representative says, quote, This change will help protect our users from SSL stripping attacks by malicious exit relays and strongly reduce the incentive to spin up exit relays for man-in-the-middle attacks in the first place, unquote. Although use of the Tor browser is commonly associated with nefarious dark web surfing, it's also a valuable tool for activists, journalists, dissidents, and NGO workers operating under oppressive government regimes. And honestly, it's good for anybody who just wants to frickin' be anonymous on the web. Privacy is not just reserved for, you know, people doing bad things or, or people in very dangerous jobs. Privacy is there for everybody. So if you really want to surf the web anonymously, if slowly, check out the Tor browser. All right, next up, this is from Inc. Magazine. It's about a proposal that Google's put out that none of us are going to be happy with. And it says, how do you feel about spam? Would you like to get more unsolicited messages in your email? Also, would you want them to land directly in your email inbox instead of being routed to your spam folder? Hold that thought, because you'll want to know what's going on with Gmail. Earlier this month, attorneys for Google sp uh, sent a 15-page letter to the Federal Election Commission, uh, that's the FEC here in the United States, asking for an advisory opinion on a plan to start exempting some political emails in Gmail from spam. Specifically, Google wants the FEC to weigh in, quote, on a proposal to launch a pilot program, unquote, under which emails from some FEC-registered political committees would, quote, not be affected by forms of spam detection to which they would otherwise be subject, unquote. Instead, Gmail users would need to mark these messages manually as spam, one by one, otherwise they'd keep coming. Google would also give data about how many emails wind up in people's Gmail inboxes to the candidates and political committees. Earlier this year, Republican politicians complained to the FEC that Google was unfairly censoring Republican fundraising emails in Gmail by sending them to spam at a higher rate than Democratic emails. Republicans alleged that this amounts to a series of, quote, illegal corporate in-kind contributions, unquote, to Democrats. Google vehemently denied any bias, and last month, CEO Sundar Pichai reportedly flew to Washington to meet with top Republicans and pitch them on the no-spam idea. Last week, the FEC announced it's extending the deadline by which people can file comments to support or object to Google's plan. The new deadline to chime in, August 5th. Okay, so here's the deal. Google has a spam filter, and apparently emails from Republicans doing fundraising were being disproportionately called spam relative to Democratic emails. Who knows how the heck they figured that out or what kind of data they might actually have to support that. But all they really need to do is complain that that's happening, whether it's true or not, and claim that there's a bias. And basically what they said is by limiting Republicans' ability to reach their potential donors for money, they're effectively giving 
corporate in-kind contributions, which is a legal term of art, basically meaning they're donating to effectively Democratic candidates. By hurting, by hurting Republican fundraising capabilities, they were basically giving money to Democrats. I think that's a bit of a stretch. But the upshot is, is Google saying, we don't want any part of this. We don't, we don't want to face lawsuits around this. So they're looking to get an exemption to their spam filtering for, you know, for recognized political entities. And if all this goes through, what that effectively means is now you're going to be getting a whole lot more solicitations for fundraising from all parties. Because Google just basically wants to say, we're out. We're, we're, not, we're not even going to try to touch this. Uh, you, you'll have to deal with it yourself. And reading that article led me to post a tweet on, <laughs> on Twitter. I am so sick and tired of spam. Just sick and tired of it. It's just way too easy for spammers to send out uh, you know, phone messages, text messages, email messages. The spam filtering is okay. Google's, Google's actually is pretty good. I don't get a lot of stuff that gets passed gets past their filter, but Yahoo's horrible. My phone company is awful. I mean, they, they'll send me a thing where the, the caller ID says spam risk, or it'll say, you know, telemarketer. It's like, just give me the option to not even see that. Why even ring my phone with that? I want to move to an allow list based everything. If you want to contact me, I have to approve you first. I don't want my phone to ring unless you are in my contact list. I don't want to receive a text message from you unless that phone number is in my contact list. If you send me an email and I don't know who you are, if I've never emailed with you before, if you're not on my address book, that should just immediately get responded to. I don't know you go away. If these companies can't figure out a way to actively figure out who's sending these things and block them, and give me the option to do so. And if our governments can't get together and require, you know, that the senders of these kind of messages must you know, register who they are and report who they are and register as spammers or marketers or whatever, so that I can filter them myself, then forget it. If, if I don't know you, I don't want to hear from you. Now, you know, with phone calls, it, fine, you could, it'll go straight to voicemail. If you really want to talk to me, leave a voicemail, and then it's up to me when I listen to that and whether I respond. And with emails, you know, just have them send a stock reply. Like, look, I don't take emails from somebody I don't know. So find another way to contact me and I'll add you to my contact list. And then you can email me something like that. The number of people that I need to hear from who I don't already know is vanishingly small. Unless it's publishers clearing house calling me to tell me I've won millions of dollars. The chance that I want to hear from you if I don't already know you is almost zero. So I want the ability on all my devices to just say, look, if you're not in my list, I don't want to hear from you. Anyway, off my soapbox, let me move on. A couple more articles here. First of all, this one's from The Intercept. And this is a subject we've covered before, so I've kind of pared it down to his, uh, to a shorter version. This is more information about uh, Amazon's Ring doorbell and their relationship with the police. And it's, it's what we assumed was happening, but uh, now we know for sure. So uh, anyway, let me read this a portion of this article from The Intercept. Ring, Amazon's perennially controversial and police-friendly surveillance subsidiary, has long defended its cozy relationship with law enforcement by pointing out that cops can only get access to a camera owner's recordings with their express permission or a court order. But in response to recent questions from Senator Ed Markey, a Democrat of Massachusetts, the company stated that it has provided police with user footage 11 times this year alone without either. Last month, Markey wrote to Amazon asking it both to clarify Ring's ever-expanding relationship with American police, who've increasingly come to rely on the company's growing residential surveillance dragnet, and to commit to a raft of policy reforms. In a July 1 response from Brian Huseman, 
Amazon vice president of public policy, the company declined to permanently agree to any of them, including, and these are uh, some quotes from the request apparently that Markey made to them. He requested that they never accept financial contributions from police agencies, never allow immigration enforcement agencies to request ring recordings, and never participate in police sting operations. And again, Amazon declined to honor any of those requests. Although Ring publicizes its policy of handing over camera footage only if the owner agrees or if a judge signs a search warrant, the company says it also reserves the right to supply police with footage in quote-unquote emergencies, defined broadly as quote, cases involving imminent danger of death or a serious physical injury to any person, unquote. Markey had also asked Amazon to clarify what exactly constitutes an emergency situation and how many times audiovisual surveillance data has been provided under such circumstances. Amazon declined to elaborate on how it defines those emergencies beyond, quote, imminent danger of death or a serious physical injury, unquote, stating only that, quote, Ring makes a good faith determination whether the request meets the well-known standard, unquote. Huseman noted that it has complied with 11 emergency requests this year alone, but did not provide details as to what the cases or rings or what rings, quote unquote, good faith determination entailed. Ring spokesperson Mai Nguyen also declined to reveal the substance of those emergency requests or the company's approval process. Matthew Gorigula, a policy analyst with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who I have interviewed before, told The Intercept he encourages any Ring owners concerned about warrantless access of their cameras to enable end-to-end -end encryption, an option the company declined to make the default setting after being urged to do so by Markey. And this is a quote from Matthew. He says, quote, I'm disturbed that Ring continues to offer, in any situation, warrantless footage from users' devices, despite the fact that, once again, police are not the customers for Ring, the people who buy the devices are the customers, unquote. He went on to add that even though the emergency exception hypothetically might be warranted in the most dire circumstances, there will always be the risks of quote-unquote mission creep and police abuse without any meaningful oversight. So yeah, that's the real issue here. I mean, no one denies that there are going to be weird cases where the bomb's going to blow up if we don't do something right now, or someone's going to be murdered right now if we don't do something right away. I, I suppose we need to allow for that somehow. But from what I've seen, and I read a separate article. I read a separate article about this. Someone actually showed the web page that the police need to go to log into, and so they need an account with this special Amazon Ring website. So that there should be some vetting process. Who knows what that is that allows them to have this account in the first place? So somebody in law enforcement has access to this account. So they've logged into the Amazon Ring doorbell video surveillance network for law enforcement. Uh, and then they go to this website webpage and say, I need this video and I need it now. And then there's just this banner that says, okay, well, if you don't have a warrant and if you haven't got consent, what you're saying is this is really important. So click here to say, this is really important. And I'll give you the video. I mean, and when I say, I'll give you the video, this is not a person at the other end. This is just an automated webpage. So all they have to do is have an account and go to this website and say, yes, I really need this. And I don't have time to get a warrant or to ask for permission. So I need it right now. Let me click this button and get it. I think there needs to be something more than just that between all of the ring video doorbell footage on the planet and a law enforcement officer who says they need it. And someone at the law enforcement agency who happens to have access to the account, which notice I didn't say was a police officer. I mean, who knows and who inside the corporation may have access to the account or how they may have gotten a hold of their credentials for this account. But whoever it is that has access to the account needs to go through more of a barrier than just basically clicking like a cookie pop-up thing. Like, I understand what I'm doing. Click yes. Give me the footage. I'm actually surprised it's only happened 11 times so far this year. 
and just being cynical, since that value was self-reported, uh, I would say that that number is probably low. All right, two more articles. This first one is pretty disturbing. I almost did this uh, two weeks ago for the news story and I ran out of time, so I'm going to cover it here. This is about somebody who figured out how to hack into basically any Honda, as in any Honda vehicle made in like the last 10 years. Uh, at least that's what it looks like. Uh, so let, let me read this article and then I'll explain and, and we'll see, but it, it doesn't look good. Hackers have uncovered ways to unlock and start nearly all modern Honda branded vehicles by wirelessly stealing codes from an owner's key fob, dubbed Rolling Pwn, PWN. The attack allows any individual to eavesdrop on a remote key fob from nearly 100 feet away and reuse them later to unlock and start a vehicle in the future without the owner's knowledge. Despite Honda's dispute that the technology in its key fobs, quote, would not allow the vulnerability, unquote, the drive, and that's the, sorry, I meant to say this, that's the name of the article I'm quoting from here, the website, the drive, has independently confirmed the validity of the attack with its own demonstration. Older vehicles use static codes for keyless entry. These static codes are inherently vulnerable as any individual can capture and replay them at will to lock and unlock a vehicle. Manufacturers later introduced rolling codes to improve vehicle security. Rolling codes work by using a pseudo-random number generator, a PRNG, which we've talked about recently because of my amulet of entropy. When a lock or unlock button is pressed on a paired key fob, the fob sends a unique code wirelessly to the vehicle encapsulated within the message. The vehicle then checks the code sent to it against an, its internal database of valid codes, and if the code is valid, the card grants the request to lock, unlock, or start the vehicle. The database contains several allowed codes as a key fob may not be in range of a vehicle when a button is pressed and may transmit a different code than what the vehicle is expecting to be next chronologically. This series of codes is also known as a window. When a vehicle receives a newer code, it typically invalidates all previous codes to protect against a replay attack. This attack works by eavesdropping on a paired key fob and capturing several codes sent by the fob. The attacker can later replay a sequence of valid codes and resync the PRNG, the pseudorandom number generator. This allows the attacker to reuse older codes that would normally be invalid, even months after the codes have been captured. A similar vulnerability was discovered late last year and added to the Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures Database, that's the CVE numbers that I keep quoting, and again this year for other Honda-branded vehicles, and it lists two different CVE numbers here. However, Honda has yet to address the issue publicly or with any of the security researchers who have reported it. In fact, when the security researchers responsible for the latest vulnerability reached out to Honda to disclose the bug, they said that they were instead told to call customer service rather, rather than submit a bug report through an official channel. And this is a quote from some spokesman at Honda. Uh, they say, quote, we've looked into past similar allegations and found them to lack substance. While we don't yet have enough information to determine if this report is credible, the key fobs in the referenced vehicles are equipped with rolling code technology that would not allow the vulnerability as represented in the report. In addition, the videos offered as evidence of the absence of rolling code do not include sufficient evidence to support the claims, unquote. So that's obviously somebody in PR just making a standard go away CYA statement multiple people have shown that this actually does work. So it's kind of moot to sit there and say this shouldn't work when it quite obviously does. So anyway, back to the article. Contrary to Honda's claim, I independently, and this is the, the writer of this article, I independently confirmed the vulnerability by capturing and replaying a sequence of lock and unlock requests with my two 
with my 2021 Honda Accord and a software-defined radio, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Despite being able to start and unlock the car, the vulnerability doesn't allow the attacker to actually drive off with the vehicle due to the proximity functionality of the key fob. However, the fact that the bad actor can get this far is already a bad sign. All right, so actually, let me stop there. So first of all, software-defined radio. So that is a little device that has built-in radio transceivers in it that through software allows you to configure it to do whatever you want. So unlike a lot of radios that are like guaranteed to be 2.4 gigahertz or something and only talk to certain things like uh, Wi-Fi or remote controls or things like that, these software-defined radios are kind of generic. They can be programmed to work on multiple frequencies and multiple communication styles. All you got to do is upload different software to it and now it's a different kind of radio. So these things are cheap. I own one. You can get one for like 30 or 35 bucks on Amazon. And then you just have to be able to write the software, which you can download lots of this on the internet for free to run on this radio so that it can do whatever you want it to do. And I've actually, I've actually thought about trying this myself because I have a Honda. I've actually thought about trying this on my own car. I just haven't had time, but this is totally within my wheelhouse. This is something I could very easily do myself. The other point I wanted to quickly make here is that what they're saying is with these key codes, it can basically, you can replay them so you could force uh, the car to lock or unlock. Uh, and some cars, if it has a start button on the key fob, then you could send it that code as well and get the car to start. But uh, most of the cars have a security feature that requires the fob to like be in the car. Like it, it's a proximity thing. So in the car, is kind of a relative term, but it tries to determine whether or not the fob is actually on you. If you've ever, if you have a car like this, you know, I mean, mine's like this too. So if, if you like leave the car running and then get out of it and the, the fob's in your pocket, it'll beep at you and say, Hey, you know, you're leaving your car running. Anyway, there's security mechanisms there that, that try to figure out how close the key fob is and whether or not it's actually in the vehicle to only allow certain things to happen while the key is with the car. So this particular attack would allow people to unlock the car, which, you know, would have let them steal what's ever inside the car or hide out in your car or whatever. It's still, it's still not good. All right. So anyway, uh, let me go back to the article real quick. They actually list some vehicles that they've tested this on. So at this time, the following vehicles may be affected by the vulnerability. And what I think they mean by that is that somebody somewhere has actually tried this and reported that it worked. So just to give you an idea of what this covers, let me just read this list of, of cars. 2012 Honda Civic, 2018 Honda XRV, 2020 Honda CRV, 2020 Honda Accord, 2021 Honda Accord, 2020 Honda Odyssey, 2021 Honda Inspire, 2022 Honda Fit, 2022 Honda Civic, 2022 Honda VE1, and a 2022 Honda Breeze. The article says it's it's not yet clear if this affects any Acura branded vehicles. I guess they're sister companies. This is a significant vulnerability that affects an unknown number of Honda branded vehicles across the globe. Essentially, any affected Honda vehicle can be unlocked today using this vulnerability and the owners have no protection against the attack. What's more, it's unclear if this can be addressed with an over-the-air update, if a dealer visit will be required, or if Honda will address it at all. After all, it could be far-reaching into older vehicles, such as the 2012 Honda Civic tested by the researchers. I think the point being there that if there was a recall on this, it would be massive. If it went back to like cars, all cars sold by Honda in the last 10 years, let's say. So it's not really clear how they're going to fix this. But the, here's the problem. So when you push the button on your key fob to unlock your car, it sends a signal to the car. And the, the rolling code technology basically says when you eventually, when you initially pair your fob with the car, 
and it kind of came this way, right? They synchronize, kind of like a, a two-factor authentication thing, like Authy. Like they kind of synchronize, and they know what the codes are going to be. It's not really time-based; it's more sequence-based. So they 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 hook up, they sync up, and now we're they're they're in the same ballpark. But because you may try pushing your button when you're too far from your car, like let's say you're out in a big parking lot at the mall and like you're trying to chirp it so you can like, where's my car? Uh, and so you're hitting the button and you're not hearing anything. Well, at that point, you're sending out codes, rolling codes, like you go to the next code, you go to the next code, your fob is generating the next code in the sequence and, and broadcasting it. And your car didn't hear it. So when you finally do get close to your car, it's going to be it's going to get a code that is like, you know, seven or eight codes down the list. But your car pre-generated a bunch of these codes, knowing that that might be possible. So when it hears a code, it looks up its list and say, oh, this, this was like seven or eight codes down in the sequence. I didn't expect to get this now. But what it's supposed to do at that point is it's supposed to say, oh, well, all these older codes, the ones that were previous to this one in the sequence, those should no longer be good. I should no longer listen for those codes and just throw them out and just resync up. And now we're back in sync again. This is the latest code I got from the fob. And now I just need to look forward and only accept codes in the sequence after that one. Well, these Hondas apparently are not doing that. There's some glitch in the code that basically, if it hears a whole bunch of old codes, like an, it, it, let's say, okay, let's say there's a sequence of 20 codes and it's pre-calculated the next 20 codes in this rolling code sequence. And so I use code one to unlock it. I use code two to lock it. I use code one or I use code three to unlock it again and code four to lock it again. You know, this is just something I do. The bad guy needs to somehow be recording those rolling codes. And you might think, okay, well, that's kind of dumb. That means this person's got to follow me around everywhere, right? And listen to catch all these codes. Well, no, what if they just plant a listening device on your car, a, a device like this software defined radio that captures these codes. So if I can put this near you or on your vehicle somewhere and record a, a, enough of these codes. And I've, the article mentioned how many, it's not that many, maybe four or five of these codes. And then here's the bug. If I then replay that series of codes in order for some dumb reason, Hondas will say, Oh, well, that's weird. I must be wrong. I must be out of sequence. And so I need to go back and honor these old codes again. So what that means is that the bad guys can now send the next code in the sequence that they already recorded that was already used and should never be honored again, but they can just now replay the next code and get the next thing to happen. This is a bug. This is a screw up. This is somebody not doing it right. Somebody probably thought there was some sort of weird fail safe scenario where, well, gee, maybe if we get out of sequence and someone starts playing an old sequence again, and we need to be able to handle that and we need their, you know, we don't want their fob to no longer work. So, you know, somehow if someone's got an old fob, maybe actually maybe what it is, is if I've got two fobs for a car. And so, you know, driver A has been issuing a bunch of codes but the, the fob for driver B is probably back on the older sequence. So maybe what they're saying is, well, now someone's got this other fob that hasn't been used in a week and is generating these old codes. And if that keeps happening, well, we, we need to honor those codes. They need to work uh, because the fobs don't talk. So my guess is that that's what's going on here. And so if that's the case, I'm not sure how you solve that. But anyway, if you've got a Honda... This is a potential problem. I mean, somebody would have to be targeting with this, but they don't have to be super sophisticated. All right. So anyway, moving on. One more article here. This is from Wired. And I've got an issue with this article. <laughs> uh, a little bit long. Let me read it. And then I will explain why I've got an issue with this article. It is titled, A New Attack Can Unmask Anonymous Users on Any Major Browser. That's the entire headline. Okay. 
So uh, it says, everyone from advertisers and marketers to government-backed hackers and spyware makers wants to identify and track users across the web. And while a staggering amount of infrastructure is already in place to do exactly that, the appetite for data and new tools to collect it has improved, insa- has proved insatiable. With that reality in mind, researchers from the New Jersey Institute of Technology are warning this week about a novel technique attackers could use to de-anonymize web visitors and potentially connect the dots on many components of Target's digital lives. The findings, which NJIT researchers will present at the Usenix Security Symposium in Boston next month, show how, a, show how an attacker who tricks someone into loading a malicious website can determine whether that visitor controls a particular public identifier, like an email address or a social media account, thus linking the visitor to a piece of potentially personal data. When you visit a website, the page can capture your IP address, but this doesn't necessarily give the site owner enough information to identify you individually. Instead, the hack analyzes subtle features of a potential target's browser activity to determine whether they are logged into an account for an array of services from YouTube and Dropbox to Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and more. Plus, the attacks work against every major browser, including the anonymity-focused Tor browser, which we just talked about. How this de-anonymization attack works is difficult to explain, but relatively easy to grasp once you have the gist. Someone carrying out the attack needs a few things to get started. A website they control, a list of accounts tied to people they want to identify as having visited that site, and content posted to the platforms of the accounts on their target list that either allows the targeted accounts to view that content or blocks them from viewing it. The attack works both ways. Next, the attacker embeds the aforementioned content on the malicious website. Then they wait to see who clicks. If anyone on the targeted list visits the site, the attackers will know who they are by analyzing which users can or cannot view the embedded content. The attack takes advantage of a number of factors most people likely take for granted. Many major services, from YouTube to Dropbox, allow users to host media and embed it on a third-party website. Regular users typically have an account with these ubiquitous services, and crucially, they often stay logged into those platforms on their phones or computers. Finally, these services allow users to restrict access to content uploaded to them. For example, you can set your Dropbox account to privately share a video with one or a handful of other users. Or you can upload a video to Facebook publicly but block certain accounts from viewing it. These block or allow relationships are the crux of how the researchers found that they can reveal identities. In the allow version of the attack, for instance, hackers might quietly share a photo on uh, Google Drive with a Gmail address of potential interest. Then they embed the photo on their malicious web page and lure the target there. When visitors' browsers attempt to load the photo via Google Drive, the attackers can accurately infer whether a visitor is allowed to access the content, aka whether they have control of the email address in question. Thanks to the major platform's existing privacy protections, the attackers can't directly check whether the site visitor was able to load the content. But the NJIT researchers realized they could analyze accessible information about the target's browser and the behavior of their processor as the request is happening to make an inference about whether the content request was allowed or denied. And you can see why this is getting kind of hairy. The technique is known as a side channel attack because the researchers found that they could accurately and reliably make this determination by training machine learning algorithms to parse seemingly unrelated data about how the victim's browser and device process the request. Once the attacker knows that the one user they allowed to view the content has done so, or that the one user they blocked has been blocked, they have de-anonymized the site visitor. 
Complicated as it may sound, the researchers warn that it would be simple to carry out once attackers have done the prep work. It would only take a couple of seconds to potentially unmask each visitor to the malicious site, and it would be virtually impossible for an unsuspecting user to detect the attack. The researchers developed a browser extension that can thwart such attacks, and it is available for Chrome and Firefox, and there's links in the show notes if you really want these, but they note it may impact performance and isn't available for all browsers. Okay, so this article headline makes it sound like these researchers have found a way to identify anybody on any browser. And while (laughs) I guess technically that's true, there's a lot of ifs that have to be satisfied before this can happen. First of all, it's not just for anybody. This isn't a mass thing. I have to be looking for somebody specifically. Second, I have to get that very specific somebody to go to a website that I control. That is probably some sort of phishing campaign. I need to somehow get them to click on, click on a malicious website link. Next, I have to somehow either have shared with or blocked this person from viewing content on a service I know that they are part of, and that person has to be currently logged into that service on that web browser so that when they go to my website and the content that they are either allowed to see or blocked from seeing, I have embedded in my website somehow, and their browser behind the scenes is doing that check to see whether or not I am allowed to view that content. And then I must be running software. Yeah, I, I, maybe I think they can do this in the browser, I guess is what they're saying. They can run JavaScript code in the browser to look at the timing uh, of how that web page is processed and some other things that basically down to the processor level, like I guess they can tell the difference in how the processor, like maybe how quickly the page is loaded or how quickly something happens. They can determine based on that, whether or not that content was blocked or allowed. That's a lot of ifs. That is a lot of very specific things that need to happen in order and it ha- it's only for very targeted people. And it only is if you're able to figure out that this person has access to or is blocked from certain content. There's a, there's a lot of weird things. So, you know, if I'm a state actor, if I'm the NSA, if I'm the KGB or whatever, or they're not KGB anymore. But if, if I'm at that level, sure, maybe I can use this to identify somebody who comes to my website. But short of that, I mean... It's just not going to happen. So this is kind of interesting on paper, but what just drives me nuts is that the headline makes it seem much, much worse than it is. All right. So that's it for the news this week. I've got a completely unrelated tip of the week, kind of like I did last time. I'm trying to come up with a list of interesting tips of the week that may not be tied directly to some of the stories. So what I want to talk about this week, and I, uh, as usual, have published a blog article and a newsletter article uh, already on this topic. So if you're a newsletter subscriber, you already have this. But what I want to talk about today for that tip of the week is there are actually a lot of other reasons to use a password vault or a password manager. I've pushed password managers very hard in the show already, but if I have somehow managed to not convince you yet that having a, a really secure vault for all of your passwords and a tool that will be able to generate and store crazy random passwords that you will never have to remember that will be impossible to crack, if that has not already convinced you to try a password manager, I thought it might be interesting to cover some other uses for password managers or password vaults that you may not have thought of that may maybe will just push you over uh, push you over the edge and get you to 
to try this out. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cover some other uses for password vaults. And I'm calling them password vaults here because they really are more than just password managers. Honestly, they're really more generically digital vaults. You can put all sorts of other, you know, secretive sensitive information into one of these things besides passwords. So as I'm reading through some of these other options, I want you to be thinking about what you are doing for these things right now. Like how am I, how am I currently doing these things that I'm about to suggest that you do using a password vault and ask yourself if they are more secure than this. So first and foremost, probably the most easiest one is financial information. And that could be one of two things. The most common one being credit card and debit card information. So when you go to a website and you're buying something and it says, Hey, you know, put in your credit card information, that's kind of a pain in the butt, right? Unless you've memorized it, you have to go find your card, uh, you know, type in the numbers, get them all correct, you know, in the expiration date and the security code. And then they often want your billing address and other information that goes along with that. And that's just a pain in the butt. Now, most browsers today will offer to say that information for you so it can fill it in for you later. That's great, but <laughs> browsers just do too many other things. Security is not their main job. Password managers, password vaults, they have one job, and that is to keep secrets, and they do it well. I would not trust your browsers to do this. You should be using a password manager to do this. So it will automatically fill in this information. So now you don't have to, there's usually a checkbox somewhere. Would you like to save this information for future purchases? You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to save it because it's in your web browser and you know, the convenience of not having to enter it because it knows about it goes away. You can just say, when you go to that website, you could just right click on it with your password manager thing and say, fill in this credit card. And you can have, of course, multiple. So fill in credit card one and it'll fill it all out for you and it won't make a mistake. But you could also put in bank account information. So that you don't do this as often, but if you're on a website where you need to set up maybe automatic bill pay or something, and so you need your account number, you need the bank's routing number, you need the account type, checking your savings or whatever, the name on the account, there's certain information you need. You could also put those kind of accounts in your password vault as well and automatically fill in that information too. And again, the consequences for getting that wrong are, can be bad, right? I mean, if it goes to the wrong account, that's bad. And this is less common, but if you're the kind of person who needs to have an IBAN code or a SWIFT code, that can be stored in there as well. But there's a lot of other forms that are just no fun to fill out, uh, and password managers will do that for you. Again, browsers will do this for you too, and they offer to do this for you, but I would not do this. And by the way, if you've had them do this before, if you've had them save this information, and you decide you want to put this in a more secure location, like in your password vault, then you would need to go and tell your browser, first of all, to stop remembering that stuff, and second, to delete it. Uh, so that it's no longer in your browser, because I don't trust your browser with this information. So uh, the other thing you can fill out is things like identity, like I've, maybe I've got a home address, or I've got a work address, or a school address, or I've got addresses for friends and family members, maybe I ship things to them often. And I don't want to have them saved in these little random websites I might be going to to buy them stuff, I want to have that information with me. And so I can automatically very quickly and accurately fill that into these web forms using my password vault. But beyond addresses, you can store things like, you know, passport numbers, driver's license numbers, social security numbers. These are all things that we have probably, you know, for our family members, certainly maybe for our kids, you know, uh, or maybe for our older parents, if we're managing some of these things for them. Where do you keep that information right now? How secure is that information where it is right now? Do you have it in an address book? Do you have it in a Word file or an Excel file that's on your, you know, sitting on your computer somewhere? Is that really more secure than putting in your password vault? It is not. I'm here to tell you it is not. But also LastPass in particular, I know does this, and I don't know if 1Password does this um, or if Bitwarden does this as well. And those are the three that I would recommend if you're going to use one. 
uh, LastPass will actually save any form data you want. So if you're on a web page that you go to often that asks you for lots of really weird settings, including checking boxes and things like that, if you just want to always have those saved and fill them out every time the same way, you could go to add an item uh, in your password vault. And if you scroll all the way to the bottom, there's, there's an option there for add all form fields, or actually I think it's called save all entered data. So fill in the stuff you know you want to be there every single time that you get tired of uh, entering every time you go to this website, and then save that. And the next time you come back, it'll automatically fill that in for you. But these password managers, again, they're really just data vaults. You can put anything in there. And one of the features that I use the most, and they all have, is something called a secure note. And it's basically just an open-ended, like, okay, here's a text box. Put in anything you want in here and give it a name, give it a title, uh, and you can store this off somewhere. And you can always get back to it when you need it. I just looked. I mean, I've got 51 of these secure notes right now in my password vault because I use it all the time. Let me, let me just give you a, a, a handful of ideas that you might want to put in there. Uh, Wi-Fi passwords for other people's houses. Computer login credentials. These are things you have to manually type in. So it's you can't the password manager can't fill it in for you. You sit down on the computer and it wants you to log in. That's something you have to type in. Well, uh, if you have it on your phone, you could bring it up. And if you need to access to like your mother's computer login credentials, you can put that in a secure note. Uh, we already talked about things like social security numbers and passports and driver's license numbers and other IDs like that. You can put them in there. Passphrases for maybe encrypted files or journals. Or we talked about Cryptomator last week. If you want to uh, save a passphrase, that'd be a good place to put it. PIN codes for electronic devices, access codes for garage doors or smart locks, combinations for physical locks. If you've got combination locks of any sort, um, like bike locks or whatever, you can put those in there. Software license keys. When you buy software and they send your license key, where do you keep that safe? Serial numbers for computers and other high dollar stuff. If you want to keep those things for insurance purposes, you know, they can be used for nefarious purposes as well. If someone gets a hold of them, if I have your serial number for your computer, for example, I might be able to try to put in a service request for it and get something done on it. How about sensitive medical information? What if you want to have a nice list of all your medications or maybe a list of your medical procedures and when they're performed or those of a loved one that you might need to when you're at a doctor's office, you need to get access to this somewhere. You know, you want to keep that stuff safe. That's sensitive info. Uh, if you have your pet's microchip, then I suggest you do, uh, you know, where might you want to store those microchip IDs? Even things like gift ideas for other people. If you want a secret list somewhere, if you want to keep something private, this is a great place to do it. So there's all sorts of things you could do. The other thing I would note is that as you're using this feature, as you're creating these secure notes, think about how you're going to try to find this note later. Like it, they've all got search boxes, right? So be thinking about tags that you could put on these. In other words, inside the note, or at least or in the title of the note, make sure that you include words that you would use to find this. Like think about this, like a one year from now, when I want to find this again, what words am I going to think up that I'm going to try to use to search for this? And then make sure those words are put somewhere in the secure note. You can put whatever you want in there. So, you know, however you think you might search for this, you know, think about it now in the future, uh, how you would do it. That's probably the same words that you want to make sure you're putting somewhere in this note so that it's searchable. All right, last up, if all that wasn't enough, the other thing that almost all good password managers will let you do is share these secrets with other people in a secure way. So once you've created this, like let's say you've got a credit card and you want to, you want your kids to have access to your credit card so they can buy stuff on your card if necessary. You can set up the credit card information piece, the, the, the data item in your vault for the credit card information, and then you can share it with your kid. Now they probably need to have an account too. And when you share it with them, you need to make sure that you, it's usually by email address is how they're identified. So you make sure that you send it 
share it with the email address that they have on file with that same service. So let's say you're both using LastPass, whatever email you use to set up the LastPass account, when you go to share it with that someone, make sure you're using uh, that email. And then they will get the invitation and they will, they can accept it. And then at any point you can revoke it. But in the meantime, while you're sharing it, if you were to update that password or update the secure note or whatever, they will see that change. And then at any point, if you want to change that, you can just revoke their access to it. And then they will not get updates anymore. That's very handy. So one last thing, if you're doing this again, make absolutely sure if you're going to put all your digital eggs in one basket. Yes, that is scary. I totally get that. But these guys are good. They have one job to do and they're doing it pretty well. But please be sure that you use two-factor authentication to protect this. And if there are some passwords that you just cannot for the life of you trust into any kind of a cloud service, go back and find my article, uh, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, about peppering your passwords. Uh, That's an interesting little workaround to that problem that may, again, kind of get you over that hump. All right, so there you go. There's your news and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, we're already running long, so I'll keep this short. Uh, If you're still interested in the Amulet of Entropy, uh, go to amuletofentropy.com and you'll get all the information there. If you want to buy one from Hackerboxes, if you're going to DEF CON, it'd be a really super cool thing to have. Or if you're just interested in, in, you know, Entropy or doing some electronic hacking, it's a great project. So DEF CON, it's only a couple weeks away now. It's uh, two weeks from Thursday. My tech talk that I'm giving, my conference talk is just about done. I've just put in some finishing touches on that. Can't wait to give that. Still don't know what my time slot is yet, but very much looking forward to that. I'm trying to decide if I'm going to spend some money on some portable recording equipment better than I had last year. Uh, I should be interviewing Jeff Moss again this year. I also may just do some random roving interviews uh, while I'm there. So I really need some sort of uh, portable setup. And the one I had last year just wasn't that great. So I'll probably need to get on the stick and buy some more of that. That'll be a few hundred bucks. But, you know, I can at least use it every time I go to DEF CON. And, you know, maybe maybe I can find some other events to cover uh, that, <laughs> that would make it worth having that. Now, if you happen to be going to DEF CON, uh, whether you're a listener, a patron, or whatever, uh, I'm thinking about having some sort of a meetup. I'm actually calling a time and place where we can get together if you're interested. I mean, as long as we're all converging on the same place, why not? And if you happen to have one of my challenge coins, yeah, that'll be a great time to cash in on your free drink. If I do this, and I probably will, but if I do this, I will announce this the Monday before the con. And if you're going to be there and you would like to meet up, let me know. I'd like to actually know ahead of time so I'll know how many people might be actually interested in doing this. If you're a patron already, you can hit me up on Discord. Otherwise, uh, go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. You can find my contact information there. All right, everybody, that'll do it for this week. we got another interview for you next week. Uh, we'll be talking with Nate Wessler from the ACLU. So take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.